It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Well, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. And what better way than enjoying a food coma while cuddled up on the couch listening to your favorite scary stories. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Six people disappeared from Nantucket Island in 1980. Something took them. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. On the night of January 25th, 1980, the temperature on Nantucket Island, Massachusetts dropped below freezing. It was so frigid that it was almost unbearable to so much as step outside without a thick, heavy-duty coat and ski mask on. The wind whipping in from the Atlantic dropped the temperature even further and the waves crashed against the shore with all the fury of Mother Nature herself. It's a night that old islanders remember well because it was the night that Margaret Kilcoyne disappeared without a trace. An assistant professor of medicine from Columbia College in New York, she flew to the island a few days prior and was last seen dining with her brother and two friends, before retiring to her home in Tom Nevers for the night. The next morning, her brother had reported her missing. There were no footprints showing her leaving at all, no trail to mark her having gone anywhere. There was a huge search and rescue mission launched for her. Coast Guard choppers flew overhead, and teams of local and state police, along with island firefighters, combed the beaches, swamps, and woods for her. But she was never found, and the authorities told the press that nobody knew what had happened to her. Why am I telling you all of this? Because it was a lie. They know well what happened to her, and she wasn't the only one to disappear either and it's time that the truth was told. I was a young man back then, only just having turned 28. Having graduated from the police academy and served in the Boston Police Department for four years, I grew tired of the hustle and bustle of city life, as well as admittedly disillusioned by the senseless violence that I saw others inflict upon each other for drugs, money, or just for kicks. So I applied to the Nantucket Sheriff's Department in February of 1978. I was accepted and I quickly moved to the island, which lay 30 miles off the shore of Cape Cod. For almost two years, it was quiet. Lifelong residents welcomed me, though always kept me slightly out of reach due to being an outsider. It was something that I honestly didn't mind in exchange for peace and quiet. Island life was slow and predictable and aside from calls about public drunkenness and dumb teenagers, there were no serious incidents. That was until the night of January 15, 1980. I had just gotten on duty and sat down at my desk to take over on the night shift, when the sheriff came striding out of his office behind me, a slightly worried look on his face. Vincent, come with me, he said simply, 
and then turned to the other deputy locking up his desk for the night. Johnson, you're going to have to do some overtime work tonight. Stay here until we get back. I heard Johnson let out a weak cry of protest, but I was already moving for the door, grabbing my coat and following the sheriff out of it. The night was as cold as a witch's tit, and a light rain had begun falling. You drive, he told me, tossing me the keys to a Dodge Ram Charger that served as one of the two sheriff's department cruisers. Slipping behind the wheel, I started the truck and pulled out onto the road. Where are we going? I asked the silent shape in the passenger seat after a moment. We're going to Sconset. The chief of police asked for our assistance over there. He said, reaching down and hitting the switch for the lights, which bathed the world around us in a swirling glow of red and blue. Sconset was a small village at the easternmost point of the island. I frowned. In all my time here, the local police have always been able to handle the cases that came their way on their own. What's so bad that the chief had called us in? A small pit had begun to settle itself in my stomach, and it grew heavier as my unasked question was answered. And Brian Mays is missing. I tore my eyes from the flicking windshield wipers in dark road in front of me to shoot the sheriff a look. Catching my gaze, he slowly nodded. His usually light eyes now looked sharp and alert. Not saying another word, he turned back to stare out into the night. I did the same as my thoughts began to race anew. Brian was a fisherman, somebody who I had always been friendly with when we ended up being called down to the docks. A hulking but quiet man in his mid-forties, he lived with his wife in a one-bedroom cabin near the water's edge. As far as I knew, he had no disagreements with any other locals, or drank enough to wander off in an inebriated stupor. The fact that the sheriff had deliberately used the word missing troubled me, though I didn't know why. Twenty minutes later, we turned onto the sandy road that served as the maze driveway. Two police cars already sat out in front of the house. I could see Mrs. Mays talking with the chief of police. She looked almost inconsolable. Parking the truck and getting out, he broke away, leaving her in the care of one of his officers while he strode over to us. Lewis, it's good to see you, he said, reaching out and shaking the sheriff's hand before sighing. Though I wish it were under better circumstances. The sheriff nodded. Yeah, the feeling's mutual, he replied. The chief turned and looked at me, nodding. Uh, Deputy Cotes, good to see you again, son. I nodded back. Sir, the sheriff cleared his throat, signaling pleasantries that ended. What have you got? The chief turned and gestured towards the house. We got a call about 45 minutes ago. Annette said that she had woken up around 11.30 due to a severe chill in the house and discovered that Brian was not in bed with her. She got up to try and find him and discovered the back door out to the beach standing wide open. She tried searching and calling for him for 15 minutes before calling us. He turned to me. I understand you used to work in the city and you were pretty good at helping detectives track down missing people. Deputy, is that correct? I nodded, feeling my professional mind kick into gear, something that I hadn't had to use since moving here. Yes, sir, I was. I answered simply. He nodded, seeming somewhat relieved. 
and then gestured it toward the open front door of the house. Please, and go join my officers inside. See if there is anything that we might have missed, because we can't spot a trace of where he could have gone. I'm going to speak to the sheriff for a few more minutes. I nodded again and then turned away and strode towards the house. And behind me I could hear the two men begin talking fast in hushed tones. But I was already slipping into the old skin that I had to wear back in Boston, detached and clinical. Stepping inside, I shivered slightly. The frigid air had invaded every inch of the house's interior. The warmth that it once held long since stripped away. The lights were on, meaning that I didn't have to pull my flashlight from my service belt. Three local officers stood in the tiny living room, conversing quietly with one another. They turned to look at me as I entered. You must be Deputy Codas. The first, a tall, clean-cut man whose name tag stated his name was Holiday, spoke. Uh, that'd be me, I answered, offering my hand to him, which after an odd delay, he took in a quick shake. I began looking around, taking in every detail of the room. My eyes were immediately drawn to the back door, which still stood wide open. I could see the pale white sand caught in the glow from the doorway. Darkness lay beyond, but I could hear the pounding of the waves as they slammed violently into the beach. So, where have you looked? I asked them. Holiday shrugged. We've looked everywhere, deputy. There are no footsteps leading from the back door outside, and the only ones in front were from them coming home. Nothing's been stolen from inside to our knowledge. Not that there's much of value in here, if I'm honest. He shook his head, pursing his lips and furrowing his brow. That's not the strangest part, though, he added. I cocked my head. What is? I asked, still glancing around. My eyes slid over the small, cheap knickknacks lining the shelves, the ancient television set against the far wall, and the torn couch and chair set behind us. Like they had said, nothing looked disturbed. Holiday finally answered. Maze didn't take any of his clothes. I started, turning to look at the man. I beg your pardon, I said, another head shake. Maze didn't take any of his clothes. His coat is still hanging up on its hook, along with his hat, scarf, and gloves. His boots are still sat by the shoehorn. Heck, he didn't even appear to get dressed. His shirt and pants are still crumpled by the bed. He shot a look out the back door. If he's out there, he's in nothing more than long johns and that's it. My mind churned as it processed what I had been told. I'm shivering while fully dressed in here. The man wouldn't be able to make it far without succumbing to the elements. But why would he leave like this, undressed and so abruptly? My gaze fell upon the kitchen where I spied the fridge standing slightly open, yellow light spilling out from within. I crossed to it, the officers trailing behind. On the countertop next to the fridge, the ingredients to make a sandwich had been placed. An open jar of mayonnaise and a butter knife stood beside two slices of bread and ham which had been set down. My mind put dots together, creating a mental picture in it. Well, it looks like he came out from the bedroom to make himself a late night snack. I said, reaching out and gently closing the fridge door. I looked back at the living room and then walked towards it. He was making the snack when something drew his attention to the back door. 
I turned and looked at the shaft of light spilling outside in the void beyond. I could see the half-awake man in my mind's eye, slowly approaching the closed door. He got to the back door and opened it and then... I trailed off, staring at the sand directly on the other side of the door. No footprints were visible in it, just as the officers had said. One of the other officers spoke up, a short, stocky guy with a military-style crew cut. And then what? I continued to stare at the sand. Something about it looked off, something that I couldn't place. Finally, I shook my head. I honestly don't know, officer, I answered. It's like he just winked out of existence the moment that he opened the door. The man spoke again, his voice holding a small note of contempt in it. So that's your professional opinion. He winked out of existence like some sci-fi pulp novel. Holiday spoke up. Sean, easy, the deputy's doing his best at assessing the scene. The other officer, Sean, snorted but said nothing more. I took a step outside, making sure to step well over the area where any trace evidence might be. Pulling my flashlight from my belt, I clicked it on and shone it down and then around. The sand appeared to be undisturbed for at least 20 feet from the cabin. I clicked my light off, allowing my eyes to adjust to the darkness. At the edge of my vision, I saw the surf crashing against the shore. The black rolling waves seeming almost ominous with the present situation that I found myself in. As I stood there looking out at the ocean, a feeling suddenly fell over me. One that I hadn't felt since moving to the island. One that I had often had while working the beat in the city. It wasn't a welcome feeling either. It was the sensation of being watched. And by someone who had the worst intentions. I slowly stood up, my instincts flooding back to me as though I had never turned them off. I could feel the eyes boring into the back of my skull, as intense as I had ever sensed in my life. A shiver cascaded up my spine and I slowly began moving my free hand towards the revolver on my belt. I kept my breathing slow and steady, but the feeling was growing stronger, as if whoever was doing the staring was getting closer. Mental images of times that I had had addicts or criminals attempt to ambush me tore through my mind. And yet, the sensation felt different. It was a more primal response, if that would properly describe it. It was as though my body felt in more danger than it ever had back in Boston. Trying not to draw attention to it, I silently unsnapped the loop holding the gun in place. Behind me, I heard a single sound the snap of a branch or piece of brush cracking underfoot, and it was less than 15 feet behind me. A new feeling fell over me, one that I didn't like. Fear. I didn't know why, but the sound coupled with the sudden silence that followed sent a waterfall of it through me. I didn't dare hesitate any longer. I ripped the revolver from its holster, whirling around and snapping the light on. At the same instant, I swear, no, I know that I saw a flurry of movement from the undergrowth behind me. I aimed both the light and the gun at the space, but when the beam reached it, it had already gone. I took a quick breath and then yelled out, my voice deep and authoritative, Nantucket Sheriff's Department, come out of there with your hands up. I heard an explosion of movement coming from behind me, 
heard the officers, both inside the house and in front of it, begin calling out. But I stayed trained on the area, beginning to move around the side of the brush for a better view. Whoever it had been, and every part of me said that it hadn't been a simple animal, couldn't have gone very far. I heard someone call out my name. Deputy Codas, what is it? I heard Holiday's voice boom out. Somebody's back over here. They booked it as soon as they realized that their hiding spot was compromised. I called back, not taking my eyes off the space. There was no movement now, but I wasn't taking any chances. Moments later, almost all the officers along with the sheriff had joined me, their weapons drawn and pointing at the line of brush. After a few tense moments of ordering whoever it was to come out, myself and a few of the officers moved in to clear it. We found nothing. Nobody was in the brush. Whoever it had been was long gone. I was almost afraid that I would be labeled jumpy or just hearing things until Sean the officer who I had not gotten along with called that he had found a lot of trampled and cracked brush, almost exactly 15 feet from where I had been standing. It confirmed my story. This put a much darker atmosphere over everything. We might no longer be dealing with a simple disappearance, but a much more nefarious case. Once we were sure that nobody was around, we gathered out in front of the house. Once the sheriff had guided Mrs. Mays inside, assuring her that an officer would be parked outside all night for safety, the chief addressed all of us. Gentlemen, what I'm about to request of you all is of the utmost importance. This is an ongoing investigation and as such, it needs to be kept out of the media. We don't need the newspapers and especially these stations on the mainland to get a hold of this. Not only could it mess our investigation up, but it would send the populace into a panic, and we can't afford that. So please, just keep this to yourselves until such time I state otherwise. Is that understood? Everyone else nodded almost immediately. I felt another knot begin to tie itself in my stomach. I didn't agree with the chief's call. Whenever we had a bad case in the city, alerting the media helped to keep the public aware and safe. I felt as though the chief were more thinking in terms of containing the damage than finding Mr. Mays, or the person who had been skulking around watching us. Even still though, I nodded. All these decades later, I wish that I had had the sense to alert the media and not let it get buried under the rug. As we drove back to the sheriff's station, I voiced my concern to the sheriff, who now sat in the passenger seat, writing out a report on his clipboard. He nodded when I finished. I understand your concerns, Vincent, he began, but the chief has good reasons for choosing to keep a lid on such a sensitive issue, and they're the ones that I happen to agree with. I began to speak again, but he raised a hand to silence me. There's nothing more to be discussed on the subject, deputy. You are to stay quiet about this case, understood? The tone of his voice indicated that it was an order and not a request. I simply nodded and then turned back to the empty road ahead. When the man spoke again, his tone was softer. Hopefully we'll find Brian May soon, along with whoever was watching you. I can't see this going beyond a single case. Just relax, son. I nodded again, still feeling as wound up as a rattlesnake inside, but trying to let the man's words be of some comfort. Still though, I remembered the feeling that I had had out back at the house. The almost primal fear, 
the thought that I couldn't push away that. If I hadn't been aware and turned around when I did, I would have been attacked, maybe dragged off without a trace like Brian Mays had. I pushed the thought away. I hoped that the sheriff was right. I had hoped this would be the only case that I would have to deal with of this nature. It somehow unnerved me, almost scared me more than anything that I had dealt with in Boston. I actually prayed that night that this would be the end of things. And when I fell asleep to dark and disturbing dreams of the poor man being dragged away by a shadowy figure to an unknown fate, I almost felt that he would be right. Oh, he was wrong. So very wrong. Two nights later, halfway through the graveyard shift, we received another call from the chief. Another person had been reported missing, this time from a home near the South Shore. A 23-year-old woman named Jenny who had worked as a cashier at one of the grocers downtown. Her boyfriend had, just like a nut maze, woken up to find it freezing, and gone downstairs to find the back door opening onto the beach, swinging in the wind, pouring off of the Atlantic. When we arrived, it was almost a carbon copy of the maze case. She hadn't taken any clothes, and it seemed that she had woken up to use the bathroom when she had gone down to investigate something at the back door. There was one difference, though, that caught my eye. A Russian nesting doll which had sat on a shelf next to the open door had been toppled from its perch, spilling at these smaller dolls onto the carpet. The sight of the spilled and chipped toy caused a new wave of trepidation and, yes, fear to sweep inside me. It's not much, but it's a sign of a struggle of some kind. Again, the chief told everyone, including Jenny's boyfriend, to keep quiet until he said otherwise. And again, everybody agreed. Everyone but me. I couldn't understand why everybody was so ardent about not alerting the general public to what now was no longer an isolated incident, but the beginning of a pattern. And when two more people disappeared from their homes in almost identical fashion in the span of a week, one, an elderly man in his 80s and a teenager of no more than 15, the feeling grew stronger. I was toiling over the idea of anonymously alerting the mainland news, or even just the local paper, when the next call came in. It was another disappearance, but this one was not an islander, which surprised me. Not many people from the mainland came to the island during the winter months, but apparently this woman had. A scientist named Kilcoin. She had flown to the island a few nights prior and after falling asleep after a night out with local friends. Her brother, some bigwig for IBM computers I learned later who would come with her, had woken up to a scene that I had become far too familiar with. When we arrived at the fancy house in Tom Nevers, I saw instantly that the chief was angry. He looked calm for all outer appearances, but I saw him gritting his teeth tight as he spoke to the brother, and then he strode over to us. Another one, Chief? The sheriff asked. He nodded. And of all people, it had to be the sister of a rich and well-connected city slicker. I started at the man's harsh tone. He's not going to be somebody that we can keep quiet like the others. He continued, shaking his head. The Coast Guard is going to be called and somehow the media already had gotten a hold of the story. He shot me a suspicious look as though he suspected that I had somehow been able to call the paper a mainland in the half hour since we had taken off. I shrugged, but inside, I felt a small sense of victory. 
I wish I had been the one who called. But maybe now word will get out. It needs to. We did our walkthrough, again just like before the back door to the house stood wide open. None of her clothes had been put on and no trace of her footstep were found outside in the sand. However, there was one difference in this case. Something that I had noticed as I had looked at the back door. There, set in the door frame just below eye level, were what appeared to be two or three deep gouges. They weren't that big and against the other nicks and grooves in the wood, it might have not been noticed, but I knew they were fresh. I ran my fingers over the grooves, surprised at how deep they truly were. It was as if two or three sharp kitchen knives had been slammed into and dragged through the wood. For whatever reason, a shiver shot up my spine, one that was equal parts fearful and wary. I quickly brought the sheriff over who regarded the marks with an odd look. It was almost as if he had seen them before and he simply asked me to mention it to my report. As he turned away, I glanced down at the sand just outside the door. I was dismayed to see that like May's case, like all the others, one thing that I had always noticed was that the sand by the door just seemed unnatural in the way that it sat, not looking blown about by the wind like the rest of it. I stepped out of the door and looked around. The wind bit at my face and I turned away from it, looking out at the crashing waves. For some reason, the sight of the dark churning water along with the ominous looking dark clouds above caused me to shiver. A feeling suddenly swept over me, the same that I had had that night we had gone to the maze house, the same feeling that I had had when we had gone to investigate all of the disappearances. A being watched, observed like I was a fish in a fishbowl. I swung around, my head darting in all directions but I saw no one on the empty beach or the nearby sand dunes. But still, the feeling remained and the same unexplainable sense of fear returned. Not wanting to stay out here alone any longer, I turned to head back inside, but I stopped. The nagging thought that I had been unable to vocalize about the sand finally clicked and I looked down at it. It almost looked like it had been swept, I whispered. A few hours later, the state troopers from the mainland had arrived and the sheriff told me to take the cruiser and head back to the station. Johnson will be there to drive it back here and take over for the day. Your shift is ended for the night. He began to turn away when I cleared my throat. Sir, with all due respect, don't you think that we should tell the state police along with the media that this woman isn't the one who's... He cut me off sharply. No. Nobody will be telling either of them anything. That's an order, and if you attempt to disobey it, I will detain and arrest you. Is that clear? My jaw dropped open as I stared at him. His words had been the last that I had expected. The man shot daggers at me and then jerked his arm at the open front door, where I saw a large congregation of officers speaking to the chief, along with a reporter from the Island News. Now go and have a good day. And with that, I turned away. To this day, I still can't properly explain the emotions that ran through me as I walked outside and got into the cruiser. The closest I can describe was that I felt bound and gagged, a prisoner without shackles. As I drove back to the station, I began to give some serious thought about transferring off the island and leaving. Nothing about this entire situation smelled right. 
When I had come to Nantucket, I originally wanted to spend the rest of my life here. It seemed so different, so peaceful. But now, after the last week or so, it felt tainted. If anything, it felt worse than the city. The city had dope peddlers, murderers, and fiends, but you knew about them. This place felt like secrets that shouldn't be concealed. And worse, after the look that I had seen on the sheriff's face, it almost felt like he knew something, if not had an idea of who was taking these people. I had no idea that I would be faced with one final disappearance a few days later. One that would draw me into the most terrifying and horrific experience of my life. I wasn't even on duty when it happened. I had been transferred to the day shift by the sheriff who I was still on thin ice with. My shift ended at just after 10 at night and I climbed into my jeep for the drive back to my house near Sakaja Pond. I pulled out a cassette tape from the tray under the dash and slid it in. The opening guitar riffs of the Rolling Stones gave me shelter echoing out from the speakers. As I drove, my mind became more and more firm in its decision to quit the department and leave the island. I turned onto a road that paralleled the ocean on the right, houses lining up and blocking the view of the beach. I just can't do this anymore. I can't be a part of some cover-up for whatever dumb reason the chief has. This is just too. I glanced up to see something run out into the road in front of me. No, not something, someone. Crap, I yelled out, jamming my feet on the brake and clutch pedals. The back wheels of the jeep locked up and for a moment, the world whirled around and my ears filled with the noise of screeching tires. And then the jeep came to a stop with a lurch, looking back the way that I had come. I sat there trying to catch my breath for a few seconds when the face appeared, almost pressing up against the windshield. Gah, I yelled out, my hand flying to my personal pistol lying under the dash. But I stopped as I saw the panicked expression of the young woman's face. A girl, no older than 16. Please help me, sir, she wailed out. Unlocking the door, I made sure the jeep's parking brake was on before jumping outside. Immediately, the girl ran around the door and buried her face in my stomach. She was crying uncontrollably, and I could tell that she was almost out of her mind with fear. Still, I needed to know what was going on. Sweetie, it's okay, I'm an off-duty deputy. Try and calm down and tell me what happened. Instantly, the girl's face looked up at me, and I couldn't help but shiver slightly, both at the petrified expression adorning her features, along with the words that she babbled out. I woke up to use the bathroom, and I heard my daddy downstairs doing something. He always stays up late. But then I heard him curse and something crashed. I heard breaking glass and wood and then I heard something scream and hiss. Something horrible. She wiped her eyes with the sleeve of her nightgown. I heard my daddy scream in pain and ran downstairs. Now she began to scream as she finished. It had him and it was dragging him out the back door. He was bleeding. Please help me. Another shiver shot through me but I pushed it down. You have to stay in control of yourself, Vincent. Your first duty is to keep the girl safe and call for backup. Then you need to see if the father is still near the house. The girl is delirious and thinks a masked man was something else. You need to move fast. Nodding at my own thoughts, I guided the girl into the passenger seat and then locked the door. Returning to the driver's side, I grabbed my pistol along with the spare flashlight. 
before reaching for the CB radio that I had wired under the dash. Tuning into the frequency the sheriff's department used, I hit the transmit button. Any deputy monitoring this frequency, this is Deputy Codes, requesting urgent backup. Does anybody copy? And the voice that answered was Johnson's. Codes, this is Johnson. What's going on? Over. Johnson, notify the sheriff and tell them to get as many local police out to my location as well. I just came across a panicked girl who said somebody broke in and took her father. I let the words hang in the air for a moment, letting them sink in. Oh Christ, not another one. I heard Johnson breathe. I hit the transmit button again. I'm leaving the girl in my jeep and going to check out the house to see if the father is still alive. Get back up here ASAP. I heard him respond, but I had already turned to the girl. Sweetie, I need to leave you in the truck while I go to see if your father's okay. She began to frantically shake her head, but I put a reassuring hand on her shoulder. It's alright, more police are on the way. Just stay in the truck and keep the door locked, okay? I'll be right back. And with that, I locked the driver's door and shut it with a clunk. I turned towards the darkened shape of the house the girl had to have run into the road from. Even from here, I could see the front door hanging wide open, occasionally swinging when a gust of wind came. A single light burned out from what had to have been the living room. Other than that, though, everything was quiet. There were no bird calls, no animals in the brush. The only things that I could hear were the pounding of the surf from the other side of the house and the creek as a swing bench mounted to the front porch swiveled in the breeze. Otherwise, a silence. To this day, I can still recall the amount of adrenaline and fear that coursed through my veins as I prepared for what might be a violent confrontation. Swallowing harder than I usually did, I shot one last look at the jeep and then began to walk towards it. As soon as I had reached the path to the front porch, I slowed down, the hand gripping my pistol now slightly sweaty even with the chill. I took a moment to breathe deep and then began to slowly creep towards the house making sure my footsteps made as little noise as possible. There was still no movement from the house, but the atmosphere that I was picking up set me even more on edge than I thought possible. The air seemed charged and tense, as if the world around me were collectively holding its breath. And there was another feeling that I was picking up on, something that I couldn't place yet, and it was the same that I had had at all the other disappearance sites except this one was 10 times stronger. Reaching the porch, I tested the bottom step to make sure that it wouldn't creak and then ascended to open the front door. The entryway was dark, but even in the gloom, I could see a staircase leading to the second floor just inside. A hallway led around it towards the back of the house and I could also see a doorway leading off to another room to the right. There's likely an identical doorway to the left if the layout of this place is similar to my house. I waited a moment, forcing everything except my training out of the forefront of my mind, and then I stepped halfway through the door. I had been correct in my assumption, a doorway to what seemed to be a sitting room lay on my left. I tilted my head so that I could see down the hallway. Nothing moved in the stillness, and I could hear the ticking of a clock echoing from the end of it. I took another deep breath, and then as much as I didn't want to... I forced myself to follow procedure and call out. Nantucket Sheriff's Department, if anybody's in there, please make yourself known. My voice sounded almost muted as it filled the house. Well, there goes the element of surprise, 
I flicked my flashlight on, tucking the wrist holding it under my gun hand, the yellow beam trailing up the stairs toward the second floor. I eyed the half-open windows at the top of the landing apprehensively. Normally, the standard procedure for a single officer clearing a home is to do the ground floor first and then move upstairs. But ever since I had gone to a domestic disturbance call five years ago, one where a man coked out of his mind and burst out of the upstairs bedroom with a shotgun while I had been clearing the first floor, I had ingrained it in me to clear the second floor first. Moving to the stairs, I climbed them quickly, thankful that, aside from a small creak on the second step, they didn't make any noise. The first door led to what had to be the father's bedroom, the large bed empty. The second opened onto a small upstairs bathroom. The third led into what had to be the girl's bedroom. As I saw a half-open closet on the other side, I chose to enter the room crossing and making sure that nobody was hiding inside. Confident that nobody was upstairs, I turned and began to head back out to the hallway, but I froze as I spared a glance out of the window. The window of the girl's bedroom faced the back of the house towards the beach. It was dark, but the clouds had pulled back some, allowing the moon to shine down onto the sand and spill into the room. It provided enough light to look down to the ground, where I caught a glimpse of a darkened figure moving. It was only for a split second whoever it had been had stepped out of line of sight visible from the room, but it was enough. I quickly clicked off my light, feeling my heart begin to beat harder in my chest. I trusted my instincts and all of them were telling me that whoever the figure had been, that it wasn't the girl's father. Moving out into the hallway, I trained the gun back downstairs. Nothing moved inside, but to say the air inside the house had taken on an even worse atmosphere would be understating it. Every darkened corner now felt threatening. Every gust of the wind hitting the windows made me feel that much tenser. Descending the stairs, I first cleared the sitting room, finding it empty, and then I made my way down the hallway towards the back of the house. I found myself in a long but narrow kitchen, the tile floor reflecting in the moonlight. This too looked to be clear. I saw a door which appeared to lead outside to the beach but turned away. I needed to finish clearing the house and after seeing the figures skulking around outside, I wasn't prepared to venture out there alone. I couldn't hear the sirens signaling my backup yet, but I knew that they had to already be on their way. Just clear the final rooms on the ground floor, then pull back out to the jeep until the others arrive. Don't be a hero and don't be stupid. Not after seeing this guy's prior handiwork. My decision made, I slowly walked back towards the entryway. The soft sound of the clock behind me chiming caused me to freeze for a moment, and then I reached the other doorway. The light that I had seen in the front window appeared to come from this room. What I could now see appeared to be a study of some kind. Books lined the shelves on every wall and an ornate desk and chair sat in the middle of the room, papers piled on top. As my eyes flickered beyond the desk, where anybody could easily hide, a noise came from beyond, causing me to raise my weapon again. I saw a doorway that I hadn't noticed at first on the far side of the room, the door wide open. 
I crossed the study slowly, making sure nobody was crouched behind the desk before approaching the door. The room beyond was dark, but I could see a large table surrounded by chairs set up in the middle of it. A dining room. Moving silently now, I scanned the room. I saw no sign of movement inside, but something had begun welling up inside me as I approached the door. Every fiber of my being had been put on high alert, and I was cognizant of everything from the wind to the beating of my heart. Out of everything in the house, this room seemed to give off the worst vibes, and it was likely due to the fact that across the room, I could see the open door which led outside to the beach. I had just taken a few steps into the room when I heard a soft squelch come from beneath my foot. Freezing, I looked down, but I couldn't see much, even with the moonlight spilling in from the doorway. Weighing my options, I decided to quickly flick on my flashlight for a second to see what I had stepped in. I aimed the light down and, holding the beam with my gun hand, I flicked it on. To this very day, I wish to God I never had. As I had said, in every other disappearance that I had been called to, aside from the nesting doll knocked over at the girl's house, there had been no signs of violence, no signs of a struggle, nothing. Well, that was not the case here. The first thing I noticed was the broken dishes that littered the floor. Tiny pieces lay scattered all around me, as if somebody had grabbed the china on the dining room table and thrown it at something or someone. The second thing I noticed was that both chairs on this side of the table had been knocked over. One had the ornate wooden carved back broken, showing somebody had been slammed into it with great force. The unknown feeling that I had had at all the prior disappearances was warming its way forward, past all my training and defenses like lava bursting from the surface. The third thing that I saw was the blood. The dining room table had been placed on top of a large braided carpet which covered the wooden floor to keep the cold from seeping up and disrupting those eating at it. And it had been thoroughly soaked in blood. I could see the large stain that I had stepped in and looking left to right, I saw that the table and display case for the china was splattered in blood as well. Instantly, I knew that the girl's father was dead. No person could lose this much blood and survive. The unknown feeling finally burst forth and I finally understood what it was. Dread. I flicked my flashlight off quickly, suddenly feeling extremely vulnerable. This is far beyond any straightforward kidnapping or robbery. This is beyond the scope likely of what these people are used to. We've been dealing with a serial killer this entire time. And I don't care about the consequences, I'm calling the mainland right. I was snapped out of my thoughts by a noise, one which came from out the open back door. My breath caught on my throat, and I felt my heart begin to thunder in my chest as I gripped my pistol tightly. Slowly I raised my eyes. In the now bright moonlight I could now see that the bloodstain turned into a smear, one that signaled something that the girl's father had been dragged. The smear led onto the wooden floor towards the door. Even from here I could see it lead onto the back porch and down the steps onto the beach. The sound came again and I realized it was the creak of the back porch. I raised the gun and pointed it at the doorway. Somebody was out there just out of sight. I saw something move, casting a shadow which stretched across the porch and into my line of sight. 
For a second, I didn't fully process what I was seeing, and then it slammed into me with all the weight of a semi-truck. The shadow had a human-like shape to it, but the proportions were all wrong. Even accounting for warping by the moonlight, the figure seemed too tall. The arms seemed to reach too far down and the shadow of the head looked misshapen. And then it moved. My blood suddenly ran cold as I heard the sound of it breathing. A wheezing rattle of air almost as if it were fighting to suck oxygen into its lungs. The porch creaked more as I saw the shadow grow larger. And then a fresh surge of fear flooded into me as I saw a second shadowy figure appear on the sandy path to the beach. It wasn't directly in the moonlight, but I saw it begin to stagger towards the doorway, and even though it was far away, I got the impression that it had already spotted me. Oh, and there's more than one of them, my mind whispered to me. And then, the one out of sight let out a laugh. I still shiver to this day recalling it. It was wet, gurgling, almost as if it were laughing through a mouth of seawater and it held a malicious glee to it that chilled me to the bone. Nothing human could have let out such a laugh. That was when something snaked around the door from the opposite side. My eyes locked on it, and I felt all the blood drain out of my face. I finally managed to whisper out two words, barely audible. Screw me. Dread and terror like I had never felt before crashed into me like a rogue wave. I only stood there for another second, and then I was running. I turned and bolted from the dining room, sprinting through the study as I heard another inhuman laugh sound from behind me. I didn't even give a second thought to using the gun. I knew that it would be as effective as the china plates had been against them. I raced out the front door and down the steps. I was halfway to my jeep when the lights suddenly snapped on, blinding me and freezing me in place. Freeze, drop your weapon. I heard a man's voice order. Hey, don't shoot, I'm a deputy. I cried out, the delirium of fear racing through my veins, causing my voice to come out higher and shriller than I had ever heard it before. For another few seconds, nobody spoke, and I feared that I would be open-fired upon, but then a familiar voice rang out. Lower your weapons, it's my deputy. The lights lowered as well, and I finally saw that my backup had already arrived. I was facing what looked like the entire island's police department, plus the sheriff's department as well. I saw the sheriff standing next to the police chief, both holding shotguns. Stony-faced officers stood on all sides of them. I saw that a few of them had already retrieved the girl from my jeep. A blanket had been draped across her shoulders as she sat in the back of a waiting ambulance. I frantically gestured behind me at the house. They're back there. There's at least two of them. I said, my voice still trembling. I saw the chief and the sheriff exchange a dark look with each other. Then they were ordering the officers into the house. They swarmed around me and up the steps as an EMT rushed and guided me back to lean against one of the squad cars. I could hear them calling out to one another as they cleared inside as I was examined. He's okay, sheriff. He said as he finished and stepped back. Just looks like he's in a bit of shock is all. The sheriff nodded and then gestured for me to follow him. As I did, I noticed something. None of these cruisers have their lights on, and they didn't use their sirens either. Even as focused as I was, I would have heard them approaching. The realization didn't sit right with me, 
Neither did the look on the sheriff's face. With a low voice, the man asked me what had happened, what I had seen when I had entered the house. Fighting the adrenaline and fear still coursing through my system, I did my best to recount everything that had happened since placing the girl in my jeep. When I had gotten to the part about what I had seen in the back door of the dining room, I saw his face darken even further than it already was. They do know what those things are. He stayed quiet for a time after I had finished, and then he sighed, as if he had come to a conclusion that he hadn't wanted to and spoke. None of what you just told me is going to be written in your report, deputy. I stared at the man in disbelief before he continued. There's not going to be an incident report of this entire situation, to be more precise, as far as it will be concerned, it never happened. Are you freaking serious, sir? He nodded. Oh, I'm dead serious, deputy, and that is not all. When you return to the station tomorrow, you will find that none of the incident reports that you've filed for the past cases, with the sole exception being the Kilcoin case, are there. They have been destroyed, and as of now, they never happened. I let out a half gasp, half laugh of shock. He didn't let me speak, though. He continued. You're not an islander, Vincent. You came from the mainland. I say this with all due respect, but you're an outsider. And outsiders will never truly understand some things about life here. This, he gestured towards the house that was still filled with officers. This is one of them. I finally found my voice again. Sir, with all due respect to you as well, you're talking about covering up the disappearances. Wait, no, the deaths of six people. Six people that were butchered and dragged off by God only knows what those things were. And you want me to shut my mouth and let you sweep this under the rug? He locked eyes with me at my words and I saw a look in them that I had never seen before. A hardness that he usually only reserved for criminals. Yes, deputy, I do. At least if you ever want to return to the mainland. I felt my jaw drop open at the man's open, not just implied threat. He spoke again. We have dealt with them for a long time now. Longer than I have been alive. As far as I know, since people moved to the island, and we've always taken care of our own when they return, we keep who we can save. And as for the unfortunate souls, he trailed off. What about those who lost people? I said, feeling a little surge of angry heat overwhelm the terrified side of myself. I gestured towards the girl now being loaded into the ambulance. What about people like her? He spared a look and then turned back to me. We make sure they understand why we don't say anything to people from the mainland. For the exact reason that I'm dealing with now, deputy, we take care of our own. I glared at him for another moment and then lowered my eyes. The sheriff's threat had been clear, and I had no doubt that between him, the chief, and the others on the island, if I didn't accept the terms given to me, that I might end up disappearing as well. Finally, I asked one final question. And Kilcoin, how are you going to explain that one? We'll place breadcrumbs, make it seem like she might have simply decided to walk out into the water and end it all. Maybe a person followed her from the mainland and abducted her. We'll figure it out, don't you worry. 
After a time, I finally nodded at not meeting the man's eyes. Fine, I said weakly. Fine, I won't say anything. I felt him place his hand on my shoulder. If you want to leave, I don't blame you one bit. I'll even give you a letter of recommendation for wherever on the mainland you would like to transfer to. As long as you keep your word. I didn't say anything back to him. I simply pulled out of his grasp and walked back to my jeep. Getting into it and I drove away. I left Nantucket the very next day, turning in my letter of resignation to the sheriff's office and calling a moving company on the mainland to come and empty my house. I would end up placing it for sale once I left, happily, and it sold quickly to a nice family to use as their summer home. As I drove my jeep onto the ferry, I remember seeing so many pairs of eyes on me. I saw the sheriff waving me farewell from the dock. I saw some of the residents giving me the side eye. I also felt other eyes on me but those that I couldn't see the owners of. They came from beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, and the feeling of them watching me never abated until the ferry was halfway back to the mainland. That was almost 44 years ago now. I ended up taking a job with the Massachusetts State Police helped by the letter of recommendation that I did end up receiving from the sheriff. I kept that job for another 20 years before retiring in 2000. The sheriff had told the truth about what would happen in the case of Margaret Kilcoin as well. Even though the case made the mainland news, owing to her brother trying to force new leads, they only found some clothes of her abandoned near a pond, along with her ID and some money. No doubt deliberately placed there to throw these state police and others off. Many ended up believing that she had committed suicide by drowning, and though the case stayed open for a while, interest eventually waned in and went cold. Today barely anyone ever remembers the case, and many of those that did have died. Nobody ever found out the truth. Because islanders can keep a secret... I only ever went back to Nantucket once, on a day trip in 2013. I honestly don't know why I did, maybe I thought it would be a form of closure that I felt I had never gotten. It didn't help though. The place looked largely unchanged in 33 years, and all the memories came flooding back to me, especially when I drove by the house that had haunted my dreams for decades. The swing still hung from the front porch and I shivered in the driver's seat of my sob across the street, the memories seeming as fresh as if they had happened yesterday, especially the memory of that webbed clawed hand snaking around the back door, the dark green almost black scales glinting in the moonlight, the claws digging into the wood like it had been paper mache. I was happy to drive back onto the ferry to return to Cape Cod before the sun went down. I didn't feel the eyes on me like I had had all those years ago, but I knew they were still there, waiting. I'm in my early 70s now. The end of my life is rapidly approaching, especially after I was diagnosed with psoriasis of the liver a year ago, a result of drinking far too much for most of my life in an attempt to try and forget but not even alcohol was ever enough to chase away the memories, the nightmares that woke me in a sheen of sweat, screaming. I finally decided with me staring up at the bladed scythe of the Grim Reaper that I needed to tell the truth about what happened all those years ago, 
and keeping quiet for over 40 years had burned a hole in my soul, and the threats from the sheriff, likely now long since dead, threw at me ring hollow. And so after hearing about this website and more importantly this page, I heard about from my grandnephew, where others post accounts of things that they've experienced that are unexplainable and terrifying. I've chosen here to tell. I know full well that most people won't believe me, and that's honestly fine, and maybe it doesn't matter. But the truth is out there now. It's known. My conscience feels lighter being able to share it. And when it's my time, I'll go far more peacefully. But there's another reason that I've chosen to tell you all what happened in 1980. That frigid at January so many miles from the mainland. It's to give you a warning. Because I've kept tabs on the goings-on on Nantucket Island. And people still do disappear from there. Fishermen and others have disappeared from the island. And the waters around it over the years. And those are the ones who, thanks to the internet and its ability to connect the entire world weren't able to be swept under the rug. I'm sure there are far more, far more people who disappear from the island than anyone will ever know. They're just still good at covering it up. I can't stop any one of you from going to Nantucket, and in all honesty, I'm not sure that I would want to. It in truth is still one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been to. If you would like to visit during the summer months, go. But if you do, don't let your guard down near the water at all. Because those things, those creatures are still out there. They are smart. Smart enough to clean up after themselves to remove all traces of their presence. The swept sand was proof of that. Stay near others as much as possible. Don't rent remote houses away from everybody else. And most importantly, if you ever hear any noises coming from around your house at night there, don't be like those unfortunate souls. Don't go and open the back door to investigate. Because it'll likely be the last thing you ever do. It's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. A few of my favorite gifts that I've found are the 12 Days of Christmas Hot Sauce Calendar. What better way to spice up the holiday season than actual hot sauce? And the Apocalypse Survival Kit. It includes a multi-tool, a compass, a torch, a whistle, and a wire saw. Everything that you need to survive the holiday apocalypse season. Zombies are pretty scary, but Black Friday shoppers are even scarier. And Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high-quality, unique, and often handmade or in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. To get 15% off your next gift, go to UncommonGoods.com slash MrCreeps. That's UncommonGoods.com slash MrCreeps for 15% off. And don't miss out on this limited-time offer. Uncommon goods, we're all out of the ordinary. My friend moved to a town where people aren't allowed to take photos. Written by World Away Tweety.
couple of months ago, my best friend Bryce moved away to a town that I had never heard of before. He had just landed his dream job. I was gutting to say the last, but worse than that, he practically ghosted me after he left. I sent a few texts here and there, even rang him a few times, but I heard nothing in return. Having been close friends since we were kids, the experience was jarring and definitely shook my trust in friendship as a concept. Thankfully, he recently sent me a text message, apologizing for the radio silence and claiming that moving and starting a new position had taken over his headspace. He told me that I should visit him in his new haunt, and I enthusiastically accepted. We carved out a week that worked for the both of us, and the plan was set. Armed with a backlog of Spotify playlists to keep me company, I plugged the address that he provided into my GPS and I went on my way. It ended up being a lengthy and confusing drive through roads unfamiliar, but finally I arrived in his neighborhood. I took in the scenery. This new neck of the woods was bizarre to say the least. On the same street, housing tacky-looking detached homes stood gothic-looking manors, straight out of a Victorian novel. Way too many convenience stores here for such a small community. And did I mention the town center? Well, wouldn't you have it, it was a collection of skyscrapers piercing through the clouds that looked sleeker than anything that I had ever seen before in my city girl life. The town planner clearly had a fragmented personality. I pulled into the driveway of Bryce's fancy cottage. Really Bryce, a cottage. Ran up the steps and I rapped at the door. He peeked out through his living room curtains and ever the goofball that I knew and loved. Shot me a puzzled look for minutes before he finally opened the door. I flung into him and gave my brother Bear a big hug. The dude seemed tense. A friend, I exclaimed. Rose, you're here, he replied. Of course, dude, you made us plan the trip down to the hour. You have gotten mad organized since we last spoke. I settled into the coziest couch that I could find in his living room and I let the snug air of his new place flood my senses. It was blissful. I had to admire what he had done to the place. It felt like the culmination of years of settling in, not some place that he had just signed a lease for. Well, I started. Now clearly you've struck it big with the new gig. All that's left for you now is finding a girlfriend so that you can do all that build a family nonsense that everybody's always yapping about. Yeah, hey, let me get you some coffee, all right. He walked into the kitchen. Hmm, more curt than I remembered him ever being. I wondered if the girlfriend comment threw him off. It was only a joke, friend. He returned moments later, coffees in hand. He handed me one of the mugs and then sat opposite of me on another sofa. So, I gotta say this area, town, little city... Uh, Google wasn't very helpful. This neighborhood is pretty quaint. He looked out the window. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I waited for him to break from his stare. He wasn't being particularly hostly. I interrupted with more small talk. Well, how are you settling in? How's life been going? He leaned back in his seat and scratched the back of his head. 
Yeah, I'm settling in fine. It's been busy. Definitely spend most of my time thinking about work. Yeah, tell me more about that. You were pretty tight-lipped about it on text. Is the job everything that you had hoped it to be? Not exactly. I poker-faced through the uncomfortable silence, hoping that he would say more. Like, he finally continued, it's definitely not what I studied. Nothing at all like what they had pitched me either. It's pretty out there. Well, what are you doing exactly? He hesitated. I could tell that he was escaping up into his own head. I think my coffee needs a bit more cream, a BRB. He left the room again. Yeah, he's the kind of guy to say the acronym out loud. I pondered in his absence. Dude was a secret, super genius who could land a gig just about anywhere. A job that required him to move to the middle of nowhere and leave his loved ones behind had to be nothing short of astounding. But hearing him now, he just seemed tired. Uninspired, even. I wondered how long this move was really going to last. I stopped myself from ruminating further. This was too much honest reflection for what was supposed to be a vacation. A selfie was in order. I pulled out my phone, coffee in hand and Bryce's welcoming abode in the background. I already had the caption for the Instagram story. Finally found him, you guys. I waited for him to round the corner. He emerged. I clicked. Snap. The light flashed to immortalize a pretty derpy-looking me and Bryce. Mug caught in mid-fall, with his arm outstretched violently screaming, No! Paralyzed by his yell, I turned to clock the shattered mug and liquid coffee beans, spilling onto his hardwood floor. Crap, I looked up at him. Sorry, what happened? Did I just... His attention turned from me to the front door. He ran to it, checked the lock, and then pulled at the door as if to test its integrity. He did the same with the balcony door, muttering to himself along the way. I'm so stupid. Of course she was going to take a picture. Why would I be so careless? I should have known that I should have freaking known. Hey, I walked up to him. It was only a selfie, Bry. I'm sorry if I caught you off guard. He took a deep breath and then spoke in a tone that was very unbecoming of the Bryce that I knew. It's my fault. I'm the moron. You always take pictures. It's what you do. And what did I do? I left you alone twice. I screwed us. I'm sorry, but you're being incredibly rude right now. Explain yourself. A stern look. We're not supposed to take photos. I raised my eyebrows. Not supposed to take photos of what? Your house? Anything. Anything at all in the town. I became convinced this was all an elaborate bit that he had been planning in anticipation of my arrival. I chuckled accordingly. That sounds stupid. A touch of softness returned to his eyes. I was hoping that I would get a chance to ease you into the explanation. But God, there's no easy way to break this to you, is there? What on earth are you talking about? His glance returned to the living room window. He stared out of it for what felt like an eternity. I idled with him, secretly wondering if my friend had become a headcase since I last saw him. He had never shown signs of being paranoid or volatile, but maybe something had changed since he had moved. 
The sound of soft tapping against the window wasn't immediately obvious. When I finally noticed it, I saw a silhouette in the front yard below. Someone, or rather, something was outside, stretching and reaching to try to peer into our elevated living room window. Hide behind the sofa, said Bryce. Are you for real? Do it now. The desperation in his voice was convincing. I begrudgingly followed the orders and crouched against the end of the sofa that I was just sitting on. I peeked ever so slightly to watch Bryce approach the window. There's nothing here for you. Bryce yelled at the stranger in the front yard. A bead of silence. The figure outside slowly lifted its hands, clutching a crumpled piece of paper between them which it then pressed against the window. It was the selfie that I had just taken. Instinctively, I laughed. It took a few seconds for logic to flood my brain and for me to wonder how on earth a stranger had a printout of a photo that I just took. That isn't ours. No photos were taken here. The photo disappeared from view. Then the entity raised a single finger, tapping the window and pointing in my direction. No one else is here. Bryce held his ground for a moment and then he closed the curtains. He sat beside me on the living room floor and placed a gentle hand on my shoulder. I was in denial. How is that even? Shh, Bryce interrupted. He'll be gone soon. Minutes passed and the tapping finally subsided. Like I said, Bryce broke the silence. I was hoping we would get a second to settle in first. How does somebody even do that? Like, technologically, how the heck could somebody do that with my phone? I don't get it. I'm gonna need you to calm down for a second. Bryce, what the heck is going on? With a grimace and a restless shuffle, he struggled to find the right words. So, he finally spoke. Let's rewind a bit. I moved to a new town for a job that I could not turn down. Right? When I got here, I knew pretty much immediately that something was very wrong. First, I thought that I was renting this place, but when I arrived, there was a deed taped to the front door signed in my name. My boss for the job I hadn't even started yet stopped by after, congratulating me on the role in the new place. He told me that my pay was going to be much higher than initially discussed, but that the scope of the role would also be way different. I asked him to explain what he meant, and he just said that I would figure it out over time. He was insistent that if I did whatever he asked in a timely manner, that I would live a safe and fulfilling life. And so, for some strange reason, you then thought it would be a great idea to text me to come here. No, no, I never texted you. I never texted anyone. I ignored everybody's calls, messages, everything. I didn't want anybody to get sucked up into this nonsense with me. But I guess it didn't matter anyways. Something reached out to you pretending to be me, which means that something wants you here. I tensed up. So, I mean, we should get the heck out of here then, right? Why didn't you ever leave? Ha, <laughs> funny enough, I almost did. But then somebody explained the ambulances to me. Ambulances. 
Yeah, they should be here soon. Bryce put a finger to his lips. The room went quiet for minutes until... The distant roars of an ambulance reached our ears. Bryce got up and moved to the kitchen window. I followed. The siren's blare grew louder and clearer. Outside the window, we could see it approaching. It turned a corner and parked on the road only a few houses away. And then I saw it. The back door of the ambulance opened up, and out stepped a man cloaked in thick garb from head to toe. He pulled a stretcher out the back door, then another and then another. All of the stretchers had people on them, people whose heads had been completely pulverized. Clumps of crimson red flesh and cartilage where faces should have been. Once all of the stretchers had been pulled out and left on the road, the cloaked man re-entered the ambulance from the back and then closed the doors. The siren blasted again and the vehicle drove off. Um, Bry, what's going on? Why am I freaking out? Bryce just stared at the stretchers on the street. They were gently rolling off in different directions. Oh man, he said, noticing a particular demolished body on one of the stretchers. I like that guy. We went grocery shopping together one time. Who are those people? People who tried to leave. That's what happens to them. And they're just left on the street? Sometimes. Other times they're brought to the incinerator, or buried or chopped up, or occasionally dropped off at someone's house. I was on the verge of a full-blown panic attack. Instinctively, I pulled on my phone and queued up the numbers at 911. Wait, wait, Rose. You don't want to do that. Rose, stop. But his words bounced right off me. My brain was on autopilot. My body was moving on its own now. I ran into one of the rooms, slammed the door shut, and then leaned against it. He knocked violently. Rose, you don't know what you're doing. Please hang up. Please. Everything was fine. I had a half-baked plan in my mind. I would call the number and then ask the operator to transfer me to a different county, the NYPD. They would know what to do. I hit call and I waited for an answer. Finally. 911, what is your emergency? Hi, I replied. I need to get connected to the closest police department outside this jurisdiction. Uh, maybe New York. Sure, can you let me know what your emergency is? Bryce pounded with even more force. Yeah, so there was an ambulance and it uh, stopped on our street and it had bodies in it. Dead bodies on stretchers that looked like they had been completely messed up. And then the bodies were just thrown on the street and... Oh right, and sorry. These were people who were trying to leave town. What? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Yes. Were the bodies in the stretchers people who tried to leave the area? She said the last six words slowly, as if she thought I was stupid. Stunned, I tried to redirect her back to the point. There was also a man, a man who showed up in our yard. He had a, he had a picture of me. There is no way that he could have had a picture of. Right and sorry, did you take a photo before this man showed up? 
I, uh, what? Bryce was seemingly ramming the door with his whole body now. I was struggling to keep it closed. Where are you now? We can send someone to you immediately. I, uh, no thanks. Are you sure, ma'am? I promise it'll be fun. Horrified, I hung up. I released my hold on the door and it burst open, sending me tumbling backwards onto the floor. Bryce entered, looming above me in anger. You didn't tell them where we were, did you? I desperately shook my head. No, no I didn't. He sighed in relief as if his whole body were exhaling with him. Thank God. He addressed me with a disappointed dad intensity. You have to stop doing that, like please. If they called somebody to this place, you could have gotten us killed. Or even worse. I've heard stories, man. The people in this neighborhood talk. I stopped myself from speculating on what worse meant. Where are we, Bri? I asked. What is this? I don't know. He wore exasperation on his face. I could tell that he was at his own breaking point. I got up and gave him a hug. More for my sanity than anything else. As I held him, the sinking, skin-crawling sensation of feeling trapped consumed me. I wanted to sob, but I just couldn't. We returned to the living room and tried our best to settle in again. I'm trying, he said, to piece together exactly what's going on here. I have some idea of the things that we should avoid doing, but still, there are a lot of question marks. Uh-huh, I said nervously. I took a quick peek outside and spotted a sign. Shaped like an arrow pointing to the left, it read, Exit this way. And before I could ask more questions, I heard his phone vibrate. He checked it and then sighed. They have another job for me, he said. Another job? Yeah, a task that I was hoping I could avoid for some time. Wish me luck. He went back to his room, and when he emerged, he was wearing a cloak not too dissimilar to the one that the ambulance driver was wearing. He left some time ago now. He gave me some clear directives before stepping out. Keep the doors locked until he's back and try not to panic. I'll try not to overthink the second one. He also showed me a special hand signal that he had used when he comes back. He told me that I should under no circumstances open the door until he flashes that gesture. It's a good thing that he told me, because only an hour after he left, it felt like he had already returned. He's standing at the door right now, softly knocking while wearing a wide smile on his face. He hasn't flashed the signal yet, so I'll probably hold off on letting him in. Imposter Bryce, as I penned him, stuck around for a couple of hours before shuffling off to God knows where. Once he was gone, I took refuge in the bedroom that looked the least worn and tried my best to get some shut-eye. Needless to say, I slept like the opposite of a baby. Ambulance sirens sung throughout the night. Occasional sounds of shuffling in the backyard bushes rang in my ear. Struggling to fall asleep, I got up to look out of the bedroom window. Outside, the street was empty. 
save for a man a block away hugging a lamppost and looking right up at me. The night in my attempts to rest became a blurry, half-awake, half-asleep haze. Eventually, the sound of knocking at the front door interrupted my drowsy nap. I left the bedroom and approached the sound, and I looked through the door's peephole, expecting some horrifying sight or nightmarish creature. It was Bryce. He was flashing the same hand signal that we had agreed upon earlier. After a minute of gearing up, I assessed the bravery needed to open the door. He entered and, to my great relief, didn't shapeshift into a warlock and rip my face off. Cool of him. He didn't say much, not even a hello. His face wore misery and his weird culty snuggie outfit had splatters of blood on it. He depressingly sauntered to his room, mumbling incoherently under his breath. Huh. Weirdly, having him home now was enough to temporarily override the PTSD that I was feeling from the last 24 hours that I went through. I went back to the room and within minutes, I was lights out. When I woke up, it felt like I had emerged from the best sleep that I had ever had, to the point that it took me a good 20 seconds to remember exactly where I was, and for the misery to creep back in. I looked at the clock and saw that the time was only 7.15am. I was flabbergasted. No way that was only an hour of sleep. I entered the dining room and Bryce was already breakfast ready. Plates were set out on the table. Does time work differently here? I asked, taking a seat. Bryce sized up my outfit. I was still wearing my clothes from yesterday. I should have remembered to lend you some PJs, my bad. I grabbed a fork full of scrambled eggs. I was hoping that he had started curbing his habit of avoiding my questions. I took a bite. Not bad. A time, he ruminated. I'm not sure. There's enough weird stuff happening here that I don't really dwell on it. Fair enough, I said. So, I was instructed to bring you with me to today's job. I almost spat egg all over the table. Bring me, me explicitly. Yep. He turned his phone around and leaned across the table to show me. Well, I'll be. There it was, wrapped in a gray bubble, the most recent text in a thread. This morning, you will visit the Parker Group building and audit their operations. Bring Rosalind Beckett with you. I sighed. I assume I have to come because not following the rules here is a bad idea. He shot me ungracefully with his finger guns. You're catching on, friendo. I decided not to protest. After yesterday's shenanigans, it was probably best that I followed Bryce's lead. We promptly finished up breakfast. Bryce basically made a beeline to his car in the driveway after... Dude took his job seriously. I joined him outside, half afraid that a banshee would jump out of the bushes or something, but things were relatively tame, actually. The only thing out of the ordinary was a gathering taking place in the Victorian mansion across the street. Through their window, I noticed a gallery of well-dressed socialites, all sitting in a circle and reading a book together. A book club at this hour. I rode shotgun in Bryce's Audi. When the heck did you get this? I asked. 
as he drove us to these skyscrapers in the town center. So, what's the escape plan? I asked. I've always been bad at small talk. I'm sorry. I'm assuming everybody in the town is trying to get the heck out of Dodge. What's the strategy? Oh, you know, a friendly reminder that your head gets pulverized if you try to escape, Rose. Or did you already forget about yesterday? Yeah, yeah, but isn't anyone theorycrafting? Figuring out some way to break out of here? Yeah, I think we're all still in the learning on how not to die phase of things, he replied. I'm disappointing. Is it only going to take me a few days to become just as resigned to things as Bryce is? I distracted myself from the melancholy by carefully eyeing the buildings that we drove past. Library, convenience store, sex shop, convenience store, auto parts, steakhouse, another steakhouse, another convenience store. This place is weird. So, I said, you ever been to this building before? Nope. Uh-huh, and what about auditing? Is that a thing you do often? First time. But you know what to do, right? Yep, I was given clear directions. Go inside and tell them why we're visiting. Let them explain what they do and let them take us where they need to take us. If anyone has any concerns, we say they were friends of Meredith Lane. Right, and who is Meredith Lane? No clue, he said. Oh, right, another rule. Avoid small talk with the employees. We closed in on the high-rises. Bryce slowed to find parking. We stepped out of the car, the illumined building ahead. We walked under the protective canopy as stone pillars framed our path. I noticed groups of people lurking behind the columns, peeking their heads out. Most were glaring, some were smiling. Bryce, I'm kind of scared. Oh, don't worry about them, they won't do anything. Okay. And we reached the entrance, the motion sensor sliding doors parted gracefully, inviting us in. We crossed into the lobby. A very sharp-dressed greeter approached us. Why, hello there, sir, and look, you brought company. Here for an audit, Bryce said briskly. Yes, of course, the folks up on nine were expecting you. Great, we'll be on our way. Bryce, all business, walked to the elevator and pressed the button to call. He stared at a framed picture that hung on the wall between the lifts. It was a portrait of a stunning luxury car. God, that is a sweet ride, he said. Ding, the elevator arrived. We slipped into the steel box and Bryce pressed the button for the ninth floor. As it went up, I mean, this isn't too bad. You always wanted to work in a fancy tech office, right? I asked. Yeah, I guess I did. Just took getting trapped in this freaky town for that dream to pan out now. I laughed. A little glimmer of our old buddy cop dynamic was back, albeit under non-ideal circumstances. He pulled out his phone, seemingly to check the text thread that he had with his boss. Alright, so let's recap on the rules. If anybody asks, friends of Meredith Lane. Meredith Lane, I echoed. We'll explore, ask the folks what they do, go wherever they ask us to. We'll take notes. We won't make small talk with them. Pretty simple. Got it, I nodded. The lift trembled momentarily as it settled on the ninth floor.
and then the doors opened. And we emerged onto a floor that had a pretty tacky looking decor, I have to say. It looked dated, unbecoming of the prestigious looking building that it was housed in. And we sauntered down the hallway flanked by boardrooms on both sides. It sounded like busy meetings were underway. Bryce entered one of the rooms seemingly at random. I trailed behind. Inside a group of gentlemen all dressed in pristine white shirts, black ties, and sharp dress pants sat around an aged mahogany table. Looks like they all got the dress memo for today. They momentarily paused their discussion, looking up at us with puzzled stares. Here for the audit, Bryce announced curtly. Carry on. Bryce produced a small notebook and pen out of his coat pocket and began jotting down notes. The professionals hesitated briefly before resuming their conversation. So, as I was saying, one of the men said, We've finished the design for the next convenience store. Murmured nods and hmms echoed around the table. We need a clear open road leading to the convenience store. Another contributed. No congestion whatsoever. I'll oversee that. Again, a chorus of agreement from the room. And what about blood? Another man interjected. Heads turned in his direction. If there is a significant amount of blood outside the convenience store, he seemingly clarified. We'll need assistance to manage it. The pattern continued. Murmurs of affirmation shared between the employees. I had to ask myself, what in the ever-loving crap were they talking about? Yet my confusion went unshared. Bryce continued to scribble in his notebook unfazed. I wondered if Bryce had noticed the man seated at the end of the table, blood pouring from his eyes onto his fancy shirt. The man with a disturbing smile who kept whispering incessantly, Blood outside the convenience store. Blood inside the convenience store. Thankfully, or maybe regrettably, Bryce seemed oblivious to him. Finishing his note-taking, he left the room and I followed. We proceeded down the hallway. Seriously, how the heck does this place not wig you out? That's simple, he replied. I'm desensitized. I am now fully dead inside. Great. We approached the kitchen at the end of the corridor. As we did, the clack of a foosball game filled our ears. We stepped inside to see two players, momentarily distracted, stopping to turn their gaze towards us. Nearby, a man pouring half and half into his coffee froze as he clocked our entrance. You're... you're... he started. Here for an audit, Bryce cut in. Their eyes remained fixed on us, silent and questioning. We're friends of Meredith Lane, Bryce clarified. Slowly, these strangers chuckled, their laughter gradually escalating into a roar. Yeah, right, friends with Meredith Lane, said one. Yeah, you hate her, chimed another. You despise her, the man with the coffee creamer tagged. What are they on about? I whispered out the side of my mouth to Bryce. And don't overthink it, nothing here makes any sense, he murmured. He stepped forward. Alright, that's enough joking around. Why don't you all tell me a bit about what you do? 
After a brief silence, the coffee man was the first to speak. I'm a firefighter, sir. A firefighter working in a skyscraper, yeah right. The woman at the foosball table spoke next. I'm an ambulance driver. She noticed the look of fright on my face and clarified. Oh, don't worry, dear, I only drive. A wiry smile crept up in the face of the man on the other side of the foosball table. I'm a police officer, occasionally a 911 operator too. I gulped and tried my best to play it cool. I looked away pretending that I was admiring the decor in the room. Bryce, doing his part, eagerly scribbled into his notebook. He lifted his head when he was done. Great, anything you would like to show us? The foosball playing officer crept closer. Friends with Meredith Lane, hey. Yep, replied Bryce. Would you like to see her? Sure. The officer led the way, opening a door to reveal another expanse of hallway. We trailed closely behind. The trek was longer than I expected. With each step, the white walls of the building started blistering and peeling. Deeper down the path, the overhead lights were now swaying and broken, casting red shadows onto the wall. Through the damp and moldy, we approached the end of this now dark corridor, reaching a heavy iron door that creaked slightly open. Blood-curdling shrieks could be heard from inside. Our guide to this destination nodded and then turned to leave. Have fun, he called out, retracing his steps and disappearing down the hallway. Bryce stepped through the door first. I trepidatiously tiptoed behind. The screaming stopped the second that we had entered. The smell of coal and old machinery assaulted my senses as I eyed what I knew to be the likely source of the screams. It was a woman. She was tied to a chair with metal chains. Her body looked contorted, twisted, broken in ways that a person couldn't be. Bones visibly protruded from open wounds all around her. Jagged metal jutted from her chest, neck, and legs. Something about her form didn't make any sense. A man in a thick cloak was crouched beside the woman. Meredith, it looks like you have some visitors. My face betrayed my attempt to pretend that any of this was normal. Side-eyeing Bryce, he didn't look so great either. The man in front of us remained focused on the chain being. What do we say when we have visitors, Meredith? A strained, croaky, empty voice left the woman. We say hello. She gargled barely. Bryce pulled out his notebook. Here for an audit, can you explain what you do? Really, Bryce? Still just business about all this. The crouched man tilted his head to address us. Of course, as you can see, I manage Meredith Lane. Let me demonstrate. He placed a hand on what was left of Meredith's shoulder. Meredith, is your leg broken? No, my leg is fine, she said, spitting blood between breathing. Um, her leg was most certainly broken. Thrice broken, in fact. The least leg-looking leg that I had ever seen. Is your chest impaled? He asked. No, my chest is not impaled, she groaned. A giant piece of metal poked out from her ribs, but sure, let's gaslight the poor woman. Is your mouth full of blood? Are you choking? 
She struggled to speak again. Blood pulled as the words left her mouth. No. No one here is the best one, he said, enthusiastically turning to us before asking his final question. Meredith, are you alive? It took her longer to respond to this one. She lifted her neck ever so slightly to look at us. Clearly, she was struggling. But there was something else in her gaze, too. Sorrow, wistfulness, regret. I'm alive, she said quite lucidly. The cloaked man stood up from his couch, exceedingly cheerful now. Now isn't that something, he proclaimed. Bryce had just scratched into the notebook. He didn't say a word. I, on the other hand, was mortified. I had just about reached my threshold. I was seconds from puking. I softly stepped back, exiting the room through the iron door for a much-needed reprieve. And Bryce didn't seem to notice, thank God. Back out in the hallway, I noticed a rather nervous-looking man pacing back and forth. After a moment, he came up to me. How are you holding up? He asked. I stuck to the rules. I'm here for an audit. He looked disappointed. Of course you are, let me guess. No photos, no small talk. Friends with Meredith Lane. Huh? Nah, I wasn't falling for it. That's right, I am friends with Meredith Lane, and that is why I'm here. I enunciated clearly, speaking slowly and thoroughly as one usually does when they're lying. He scratched his head and then turned to leave. He looked back at me once more before doing so. You know, just once I wish I could talk to somebody who found all this as horrifying as I do. I pursed my lips. Ah, screw it, he said. I'll figure some way out of this nightmare. Talking to emotionless robots all day. He muttered, walking off. Wait, I called out. He stopped and then turned. Let's talk, I said as quietly as I could. He stepped back towards me. He came with an air of nervous desperation. Holy crap, an actual conversation, he said. Look, I'm not sure how much time we have, but I have a working theory about this place that I think might piece everything together. Spill. He leaned into my ear and whispered. He didn't want anybody else to hear this. Sweetheart, you know you're not supposed to break the rules. He gripped my neck with one of his hands and covered my mouth with the other. We have to follow the rules. I struggled to get away, but he was much more powerful than he looked. Without them, we... we... I could feel my breath disappearing. And this is how I die, isn't it? He squeezed it down on my larynx with all of his might. What a stupid way to die. But then the pressure released. I gasped for breath as the attacker staggered backwards. I guess not. My assailant was recoiling in horror at the sight of... Bryce? Emerging from the boiler room, Bryce quickly moved to support me, preventing me from collapsing to the floor. The man backpedaled to his feet and fled down the corridor. Bryce took a step as if to chase him and then hesitated and turned back to me. God, are you okay? Bryce asked with concern. No, not really, I said coughing. I'm sorry, I'm such a dunce. Bryce squeezed my hand reassuringly. Hey, you're okay, you'll settle in with time. As I gathered my bearings, I heard Bryce's phone buzz again. He checked the tax. 
and guess our job's done for the day, he said. We can go home now. I didn't let go of his hand as we walked down the corridor. How'd you scare that dude away? Eh, once you've been here long enough, you find a way to maneuver the danger. We took the elevator down. Once we were in the lobby, we made a beeline for the exit. Just as we stepped through these sliding doors to the outside, I heard the greeter call from behind. Please visit us again when you get the chance, Mr. Mayor. Bryce visibly winced at the greeter's call. Mr. Mayor, I asked him. You're the mayor of this place? He shrugged it off as we walked to the car. It's just the job they gave me. We can chat more about it later. The drive home was quiet. Between Bryce's surprise role as mayor and his strange midnight job from last night, a swirl of confusion settled in my stomach. Still riding shotgun with him, I felt safer than I would have without him. But one thing was clear now, more than before. We couldn't stay here. I needed to find a way out for us. When we got home, Bryce asked for a few hours to de-stress before my barrage of questions. He spent most of it reading a gothic mystery novel on the sofa, as well as retreating into his room to do some private journaling. The evening settled in and Bryce finally scuttled into my room. The mayor, huh? When were you planning to tell me that was what you did here? He threw his arms up in exasperation. Look, I, there it was. He struggled. I don't know. I'm not sure if I ever would have felt comfortable mentioning it if I'm being honest. I never chose the job. They gave it to me when I got here and since then, I've just been trying to get by. I only had one glaring question on my mind at this point. Everyone in that building said that you hated Meredith Lane. And people here say stupid stuff. Literally none of that is. Bryce, just please. Please tell me you didn't order for that poor woman to get chained and tortured like that. Bryce stared at me aghast. Do you really actually think I'm capable of something like that? Of course, in the moment I told him no. But as I lay there in bed that night, the question spun around in my head. Was Bryce capable of great evil? The guy that I had known my whole life, no way. The guy who's been trapped in this demented town for months now. I'm not sure. This place could ruin anyone after enough time, couldn't it? I stopped myself there, and I turned my brain off for the sake of some shut-eye. In the morning, I checked the clock on my bedside table. 7.15am. That's twice now. I entered the dining room. Bryce had leftover breakfast on the table for me, a suite of them. With it came a note. Got called in for an early job. I'm helping make candles today, whatever that means here. I know it's in your DNA to be brash, but please, don't do anything stupid while I'm gone. Stay home, and if for some reason you decide to wander out, stay far, far away from the graveyard. Bad things happen the closer that you get to it. I took a bite of my toast. Me, brash? Why, I never... After finishing up the morning spread, I sauntered to the living room window and I looked outside. Once again, folks were gathered inside the Victorian mansion across the street. They sat in a circle, each of them with a book in hand. 
This time, however, their attention was focused on the TV in the room. Something plain that I couldn't quite make out from my vantage point. Someone rose to turn the TV off. And then they all looked at me in unison and smiled. What? Without missing a beat, they shifted their focus back to the books. One of the men began to read aloud while the rest followed intently. Welp, one thing was for certain. I'd rather be chained up like Meredith Lane than forced to join the disturbing reading group here. I pondered what to do with my day. Surely not everybody in town was preposterously dangerous. At least one of the 80 or so convenience store clerks must have had some sort of insight on how to escape, right? But wait, Bryce wasn't home again, and he had a journal. Did I dare? It would have been an invasion of privacy, sure, but you know desperate times, desperate measures. Sometimes you gotta break some rules, yada yada yada. I entered his room. After a bit of scanning, I located the journal that he had stashed in one of his drawers. I flipped to the latest entry, hoping to find something interesting. At the top of the page was yesterday's date. Underneath, a few bullet points lazily scribbled. What was with the portrait of the car in the Parker building yesterday? The guy who attacked Rose, he looked familiar. Who is Meredith Lane? And why did I kind of like seeing her get tortured? Wait, what? The third line stunned me. It felt like a bullet had gone through my stomach. Suddenly, my pocket vibrated sharply. A text. I pulled my phone out and read the first new message that I had received since I had arrived here. It was from a number I didn't recognize and it simply read. Be outside in one minute. Your job for the day is ten bodies. You have got to be kidding me. Was this a test? Was I supposed to ignore it or was this a task that I had to follow? Does this town really want me to kill people? A knock at the door and then another and another. I stashed the journal back into the drawer, now with bigger fish to fry than figuring out Bryce's inner workings. I searched my mind for a smart thing to do here and I came up empty. Rudderless, I walked to the front door's peephole and I checked outside. A man in a Hawaiian shirt stood idly by the door. He looked bored. Further out, an ambulance sat parked on the street. Is he gonna kill me? As if reading my mind, he spoke up. Not gonna kill you, newbie. I didn't respond. You're on the route today, he added. Could I actually trust him? He looked at his watch. Look, it's your life. Do what you gotta do, but bad things do happen when you turn down a job. So I would strongly suggest. I swung the door open, raised my fists, and shot at my meanest glare. That should scare him. He chuckled. It's gonna take more than a punch to kill me, I'm afraid. He pivoted and began descending the stairs. Alright, let's head out. I followed him. He casually paced towards the ambulance's rear doors, opened them, and stepped inside. I peeked in behind him, anticipating the horrifying sight of piles and piles of dead bodies. Instead, the ambulance looked surprisingly ordinary. To the left, a white bench stretched along the wall. A rather striking woman was seated, dressed in a cloak that was all too familiar to me at this point. The Hawaiian-shirted man settled in beside her. 
On the opposite side, a pile of single-fold stretchers were haphazardly arranged against the wall. Dominating the center, a modest table was firmly anchored to the floor. Atop it sat an eye-catching candle and a worn black digital camera. I climbed into the back. Without missing a beat, the mystery man slipped on a cloak similar to the woman's and handed me another just like it. Your uniform for when you're on the job, he clarified. He shut the back doors, struck a match to light the candle, and moments later, the vehicle set into motion. I begrudgingly put on the bulky cult outfit. I guess I'm a part of the club now. Unsure of what to do next, I ran with an icebreaker. So, is our job, I said slowly, to, um, bash people's heads in or something. The man and woman looked at each other, eyebrows raised in shared amusement. They started laughing. Oh, you newcomers, the man said, wiping away a tear. Uh, so good. Yes, the woman tagged. We use terrifying black magic rituals to punish all those who try to leave. And sometimes when the magic doesn't work, we resort to the ancient art of stick throwing. She nodded. Never underestimate a well-aimed twig. Dorky giggles permeated their sarcastic ribbing. It was annoying. Look, clearly you two are having a ball right now, but can you just say it plainly? You don't kill people, right? Right, the woman responded more seriously. Some of us just want to get through the cursed day and go home. Fair enough, lady. It was an interesting ambulance ride. I learned their names, Matthias and Svetlana. They were a couple, actually. I'm afraid that I only caught on once I saw them sneak a kiss, though. They spent most of the ride home doing some pretty nonsensical stuff. With a deck of cards, they played a demented version of Go Fish that I couldn't fully understand the rules of. Later, Matthias broke into song, belting what sounded like three vaguely familiar pop tunes randomly mashed together. Svetlana knew it and sang along, which I guess is what mattered. Finally, Svetlana pitched a game where we would all ask each other increasingly personal questions. I bowed out using the excuse that I was still jarred by the no-small-talk rule in the Parker Group building. The two of them passed questions back and forth. What's the funniest thing that ever happened to you? When was the last time that you felt super embarrassed? And then, rather innocently, from Svetlana to Matthias, what was the happiest moment of your life? He looked back at her wistfully. The day that I met you... She held her hand to his cheek and they shared a genuinely loving gaze. Ah, barf. Too much. Please make it stop. The ambulance screeched to a halt. The driver called out. All right, body retrieval, let's go. My colleague shifted to a more somber tone. They opened the rear exit and stepped out and I followed. We had stopped at a house. There on the grass before us, a man lay dead, a camera in his hand. His twisted neck, contorted body, and protruding bones gave me flashbacks to Meredith. Two police officers stood over him. They regarded us as we walked up. I took a photo of himself, a sucker's way out, one said. The other officer chimed in. You gotta question the logic. And did he think this would somehow be a shorter death? The first mimed at taking a photo, voice high-pitched in imitation. He was probably like, 
Ah, this will be painless. Ah, click. Wait, why am I not dead? Wait, what was that? Bah, ah. Matthias pulled a stretcher from the ambulance, setting it next to the lifeless figure while the officers laughed. Together, he and Svetlana softly lifted the body onto it. What the, why are all of you so dang gloom? One of the officers said and he turned to me. You, you especially. Svetlana and Matthias lifted the stretcher and brought it into the ambulance. The officers closed their distance with me. You're pretty tense, the second officer remarked. Maybe living with the mayor is starting to take its toll on you. Matthias called from the ambulance. All right, let's go, Rose. But I couldn't move. The collective stare of the officers had me petrified. The first officer leaned in closer. I'm sure you know the mayor is terrified of cops now, don't you? He has a whole page about it in that diary of his that you snooped in this morning. How could they possibly know? What? Do you not realize that we see everything? Do you actually think your rule-breaking is going unnoticed? I backed away from them as if they were two lurking panthers. No sudden movement, stay calm, deliberate. Any misstep could spell doom. Gently, I felt for the edge of the ambulance before hoisting myself through the rear doors. I closed them behind me. Mercifully, the ambulance rolled forward. I settled into my seat. As the fear subsided, involuntarily, my eyes swelled up. Matthias placed a hand on my shoulder. Svetlana gently touched my arm. Uh, don't worry about those creeps, said Matthias. Yeah, they won't do anything to you. They're all just talk. I appreciated the gesture. Unfortunately, it was hard to feel great with the grim sight of a mangled corpse right in front of us. Matthias shook his head at the sight. Even with how horrible all of this is, I'll never understand doing something like that to yourself. Svetlana gazed at the stretcher, her eyes full of compassion. Perhaps he just wasn't strong enough to handle it anymore. Matthias shrugged. Despite some weak attempts at small talk from all three of us, it was hard to shake the dismal air now permeating the ambulance. The ride went on for a good while until... Destination, the driver called. The vehicle jolted to a stop. Svetlana pushed the doors open, revealing a vast, forest expanse. The trees, though large, were spread out and sparse. In the distance, I spotted a thick white fog that seemingly stretched out into eternity. Were we at the edge of town? One by one, we exited the ambulance, our steps crunching on the leaves underneath. The rear doors had been left ajar. Okay, I started, so what do we... I was interrupted by the click of a camera. I shuddered. Svetlana held me, still as the sound of another click went off and then another. What's happening? Don't worry, she soothed. We only have to collect the bodies. I realized that each echo of a click was accompanied with a piercing flash contained within the smothering mist ahead of us. What was this? A gentleman that I barely had time to notice stepped out from behind a nearby tree and paced toward the fog. He muttered under his breath, It'll be okay, it'll all be okay. Just a quick snap, I won't even feel it. And then I'll be free. He crossed the threshold into the fog and ventured deeper. 
becoming more of a faint trace with each step. In my peripheral, I noticed another woman in tattered clothes step across the forest and into the shrouding haze. Her mumbles barely reached my ears. I believe in the walking fire, the holy serpent, the tree of life will perish for our salvation. And in she went. From behind us, another man triumphantly jogged past, straight into the mist. He shouted out as he did, It's a mirage, there's nothing real keeping us here. The deeper he went until he was just a speck in the white veil. Everything was a lie. Click, click, click. Each click was accompanied with the sound of a harsh pop and a powerful flash within the fog. The sound of bodies dropping. And then, as if they were the tide coming in, the bodies softly and effortlessly slid right out of the fog, right in front of us now. Bodies with pulverized heads, like all the others that I had seen the ambulances drop off. I tried to process what I was seeing. Matthias, meanwhile, was all business. He pulled small stretchers out of the ambulance and began positioning them next to the bodies, sighing all the while. A quota was tense, though this should be pretty quick, he said. I scanned the environment closely. Far off, more lifeless forms lay scattered. The clicks continued, the lights flashing, bodies floating out of the fog. There were already more than ten dead here, and behind us, groups of people lurked behind trees, staring out into the abyss. Were these the folks who were contemplating escaping too? Svetlana addressed Matthias briefly. I think our newbie's scared, so I'm gonna comfort her. He nodded and she led me aside. I'm not that scared. I started, but she shushed me. I love you, she called out to Matthias. Love you too, he responded a tad absently, distracted by his work. What a pro. She pulled me away from the scene to a looming tree beside the fog. What is it? I asked her. She pulled something out of her pocket and placed it in my hand. It was a sketch, a pencil drawing of Matthias, and it was pretty good. I drew it for him one random night. I'm very grateful that sketches aren't illegal. A quiet laugh followed her words. I shot her a confused look. She smiled. Please give it to him, okay? Uh, sure, I said. Why? She took a deep breath and then turned around and disappeared into the fog. Wait, what are you? Click. She was close enough that I saw the flash cave in her head. Before she had even hit the ground, her corpse was pulled out of the fog and brought to my feet. What the? In disbelief, I wandered back to Matthias. He was in the midst of loading another body into the already full-looking ambulance. Uh, finally deciding to help, huh? He said, presumably hearing my stops. I couldn't say anything. He turned around in response to my silence. Why are you crying? I had clearly forgotten how to talk. He walked up to me, his gaze lowering to the item in my hand. I passed it to him, a confused smile across his face. He lifted his head to peer over me. His eyes found Svetlana's body in the distance. He exhaled sharply. After a minute of stillness, he approached what was left of her. I placed my hand on his back and accompanied. Walking that small distance felt like a lifetime. 
Finally, she was in front of us. Matthias looked down at her lovingly. She never isn't beautiful. The best that I could muster up in response was a platitude. She really loved you, you know. He scrunched up a smile. And I her. He stood and he put the sketch into his cloak pocket and then lovingly tapped it after placing. So the good news is, is that I've already loaded eight. And I pray that Svetlana and I won't be too heavy, he said. And then, with a brisk pace, he walked into the fog. No. I chased behind him, crossing into the mist. I reached out to pull at his cloak. Please, please stop, just wait a second. There has to be something that you can do, there has to be some- I'm not even sure if he could hear me, but deeper still he went, and deeper still I followed. My words didn't even make any sense. What am I doing, this is insane. I extended out with all my might to pull him back. Please, you can't just give up. Click. And he was gone. And as his blood flickered onto me, I realized that I was going to be next. There I was yet again, staring death in the face while feeling nothing but confusion. With a violent yank, I felt something pull me out of the fog. Suddenly, the cloud of white was in front of me, but I wasn't within it anymore. I turned around to see who or what might have pulled me to safety, but it was already gone. I could have sworn that I heard a whisper as the forest brought me out. The words, You should be enjoying your gift. I cried in fear and all the things awful as Matthias's body appeared beside me. In the hour that it took to get up and finish the shift, I wondered what kind of gift this was supposed to be. It wasn't fair. Neither of them had deserved this. So I did the only thing that felt right. And when the text came in telling me to drop the bodies in the middle of the street, any street is fine. I refused. They deserved a proper resting place and so I told the ambulance driver that the instructions were to take all ten to the graveyard. He seemed surprised but he obliged anyway. It wasn't until halfway through burying the bodies that I remembered Bryce's warning about the graveyard. Though to be honest, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Yes, amongst a sea of hundreds of pre-dug graves and tombstones marked by the names of strangers, it was a bit weird to see mine and Bryce's names among the bunch. But besides that, it was pretty tame. The ambulance driver brought me back home. He didn't seem too stressed about the two crew deaths today. His logic was, it's unfortunate, but that's the way that things go. When I pressed him on what he meant, he said, there's a certain decency to letting things go, a decency in allowing death to be death and not fighting it, and not being the kind of person who tampers with that reality. Okay, Freud. When I got home, I remembered Bryce's unnerving journal entry and I tried to muster up the sanity to finally start being afraid of him, but I just couldn't. He's harmless, I mean I know he is. Though I will say he's acting pretty weird right now. He's staring out the living room window at the Victorian mansion across the street. He's holding one of his mystery novels in his hand. He keeps saying, I get it now, I get it now, I get it now and he's starting to look a bit frenzied. I'll ask him what's going on once he calms down a bit.
I went to bed shortly after getting home. Bryce and I didn't say much to each other. He was in his own little world, rambling to himself. I could hear him deteriorating in the middle of the night, his whispers becoming more fevered, more intense. It was unnerving. I woke up at 7.15. I mean, of course I did. I left my room not sure what to expect this time. I entered the living room to catch Bryce already waiting for me sitting on the couch. Where were you yesterday? He asked. I thought carefully about my response. They texted me with a job, ambulance duty. I'm surprised it took you until the morning to ask me, is everything okay? He sighed. Yeah, they made me do that ambulance job too. Body retrieval, it was horrific. He looked at me intently. Rose, I've been noticing some things here. For quite some time now, actually. I'm piecing it all together and I think, I think I know what's going on. Uh-huh. An awkward silence fell between us. This time, it was me who didn't want to talk. Why are you being weird? It feels like you're afraid of me, he said. I read your diary. You said you liked seeing Meredith Lang get tortured. I felt a familiar buzz come from my pocket when I noticed Bryce reacting to his own. We both pulled out our phones to check our respective messages. My text read, Cross the street and come inside. Instinctively, I glanced through the living room window. In the Victorian mansion opposite, a man stood by the balcony with his phone in hand. I turned to Bryce. What does your message say? They're telling me to stay home today. You? Huh, I guess they just want me. I swallowed my nervousness. They want me to join them across the street. Bryce got up from his seat and looked outside at the opposing mansion. My boss wants you to visit. Your boss lives there? Actually, you know what? It doesn't even matter. I'm tired of trying to understand this stupid place. I turned away from Bryce, walked to the front door and opened it, and I stepped outside. Rose, wait, he called. All of my rule-breaking had certainly gotten the attention of the powers that be. I was afraid, sure, but still, it was time to get this over with. I walked down the stairs and ventured onto the pavement. I could hear Bryce's footsteps echoing behind me. He grabbed my shoulder. Hey, hold on, let's just think this through. The folks in that mansion, my boss, the town planner, they run this place. Well, thanks for the heads up, Mr. Mayor, I replied. He whispered close to me in a panic. Look, I've only ever met my boss. For the rest, I've just heard stories. Not great stories, mind you. The town planner, apparently, she's a real monster. I turned around and faced him. Go home, Bryce. They asked for me, not you. He stood resolute. I'm coming. I shrugged. Suit yourself. I inched up the stairs to the mansion. As I did, I looked through a nearby glass-paneled wall to notice that the creeps, or these socialites, were in the middle of their book club again. A room in broad daylight filled with lit candles for some reason. I turned the unlocked doorknob and entered. Inside, the man who had stood by the balcony greeted me with an unsettling eagerness. Rose, he said. You know my name, I replied. Of course you do. Oh, you've become quite the celebrity with your rule-breaking. 
he replied. His gaze lifted to Bryce. I'm afraid you weren't included in the invitation. Bryce folded his arms. Well, I'm sorry, boss, but I'm coming in too. Oh, is that so? The man replied. The man, Bryce's apparent boss, made way for me to enter, so I took it. He blocked Bryce's way, however, and the two of them exchanged increasingly heated words. I'd already tuned them out, though. I continued onward deeper into the mansion. I followed the voice echoing through the halls, the sound of the book club reader paired with the rustle of flipping pages. Let us begin as we always do with a recounting of the birth of this lovely town. I stepped closer until the doorframe revealed a group sitting in a circle of chairs inside. The speaker, open book in hand, continued reading. It's a story that starts with tragedy. The fateful morning when Meredith Lane ran a red light and crashed into Bryce, killing him instantly. Right, a great book club. What sort of gibberish were they going to say next? This cosmic accident spurred by something as inconsequential as Bryce's morning drive to the convenience store gave rise to our creation. Man, this place is obsessed with convenience stores, I tell ya. I entered the room. Bryce left the mortal plane at 7.15am, with Meredith departing hours later. But, their deaths were undone. Meredith and Bryce now live as the two pillars of our neighborhood. Around me, dozens of candles were scattered. They are the two halves of a ritual that keep us tethered to the real world. A table set in the center of the reading circle. A ritual taken upon by somebody brash enough to defy reality. It bore a unique candle, a Polaroid camera and a photo just out of clear view. Brave enough to challenge truth. I walked into the center of the circle and arrived at the table and see through the realization of the impossible. I looked at the photo. It was a picture of Bryce, demolished in the wreckage of a car, his head completely smashed in, pulverized. Wait, why did this look familiar? She still had something that she wanted to say to him. She wasn't ready to let go, so she channeled her grief and attempted ritual after ritual after ritual. I looked at the woman reading the passage. Her face was veiled by a shadowy cloak. Her voice sounded familiar. And then suddenly the hum of a TV. One of the readers had risen as if on cue to switch it on. The book club members lifted their heads from their laps to watch. I joined them. The static on the TV settled and then grainy footage. On screen was a woman who looked consumed with what appeared to be grief. Why was she in my room? The woman drew a pentagram on a parchment, drawing blood from a deep cut on her palm. Once she had finished the sigil's design, she lit five candles at its corners. The scene shifted. Now the woman had a bowl of dark water in front of her. She whispered into a raven's feather, then delicately dipped it into the water and stirred. Guide him back to me, she whispered. Return to me a Bryce that will never ever leave my side. And then through the static a new scene. This time a Polaroid picture lay before her, with a distinctive candle flickering beside her. She was sobbing. Her fingers were smeared with blood. 
She held an obsidian knife and carved ruins onto the picture while whispering a strange incantation. The TV flickered off. I stood petrified within the ring of seated strangers around me. What is this? They all smiled. It's what you built, Rose. For Bryce. The cloaked woman returned her focus to the book. We're almost done with the reading. She continued with the passage. Finally, she succeeded, securing a special photo of the deceased body in the wreckage. She sprung forth a ritual powerful enough to return him to life, but not just his body and spirit, no, rather his full headspace, brought to concrete reality in the form of a town, a community where the resurrected could be surrounded by all the things that make up his mind, fragmented thought forms given solid life. What? How could this have even... The enchantress who brought upon the ritual would be split into two. One half of her would go on forgetting this tragedy ever occurred, and would one day be called upon to enter into this constructed paradise. The other half of her, the one knowing the grief, would be born into this town to bring it to life. The reader shut her book. So did the others in the circle. The echo of steps came pattering into the room. I turned to the source of the noise to see Bryce's boss, the man who had greeted us, holding an unconscious Bryce in his arms. What? What did you do to him? I asked. The man shook his head. Fear not, I merely subdued him. The only thing that can actually kill Bryce is the graveyard. He smiled at me. Welcome, Rose, to your creation. The room broke into applause. Of course, the man continued placing Bryce's body gently on the floor. It wasn't a singular effort. He stepped towards the woman in the cloak, the reader, and lifted the veil from her head. She looked identical to me. I would like to introduce you to today's very special reader, our very own town planner, he said as the clapping persisted. The architect who constructed this wonder of a community building it using pieces of Bryce's headspace, and ratifying it with rules to protect our existence. Slowly, my lookalike crept up from her chair. She limped towards me. Eventually, we were face to face. In this neighborhood spawned from his mental landscape, she started, we've constructed everything Bryce has ever wanted. The cottage and car of his choosing, the tech office of his dreams just in reach. Convenience stores aplenty with clear roads to prevent accidents. And mansions and houses built from these same prose contained in his favorite novels. Of course, as with all great towns, a contrast is required. So, we also saw to it to imbue this place with some of Bryce's greatest anxieties. Police officers to start. What the heck was she talking about? Now sure, some of the thought form residents here might try to escape, in which case it's only fitting that their bodies end up as Bryce's did when he had first departed. But the rest of them are free to live as they please. They can work, fall in love, do whatever they would like, just as long as they follow the rules. No calls to the outside. No office chatter to theory craft and conspire. No leaving. This town and its residents are born of Bryce's psyche. 
If things fragment and spill out into the outside world, the ritual will dissipate, and this place will cease to exist. Hence why rule breakers are strewn about the street as public warnings. What are you saying? And what about no photos? I asked, shell-shocked. Where does that rule come from? The town planner grabbed the Polaroid of Bryce's dead body from the table and held it in front of me. My detest for photos appeared right after the stringer first gave me the picture of Bryce's body. Photos are cruel. Bryce's death should be struck from the record and yet, by being the core of the incantation that birthed this town, this photo will never cease to exist. She tore up the photo. Immediately, there was a duplicate of it back on the table. You brought all of this to life with your beautiful brashness, she said. But it's time now for you to follow the rules and relish what you built. Don't let your strong-headedness cheat you out of this. You should be enjoying your gift. I, I did this. Through the sheer horror, I had one last question for my doppelganger. And Meredith Lane, did you pluck her out of Bryce's headspace too? My other half smiled. While Bryce's subconscious would surely loathe the person who stole his life away, her current state is my creation alone. Think of it as her punishment for taking him away from us. I looked down at Bryce's unconscious body on the floor. I couldn't let go, I said, and so I brought him back into hell. I glared at the physical manifestation of my grief standing before me. Do you really think that he's happy with any of this? She gazed at me tenderly. I'm sure deep down he's happy to be alive again, and by bringing him back you gave life to so many others. To the residents here, you are the creator. You made this happen. The circle of strangers beamed to smiles at me. Strangers who would kill me for breaking the rules of the town that I brought to life with my selfishness. You're right, I started. I made this happen. I stood over a lit candle on the table. And so it's up to me to fix things. After all, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, right? I tipped the candle to the floor. A fire spilled onto the rug and spread. Immediately, I moved from windowsill to shelves to mantles, knocking candle after candle to the ground, igniting patches of fire around the room. The members closed in to stop me. I grabbed their discarded books and hurled them into the flames to speed up the spread. I picked up a final book from the floor, already partially burning, and threw it across the room into another section of the manor. The residents scattered in their desperate attempts to quell the growing blaze. Amidst the chaos, I spotted my twin. I snatched the Polaroid from the table and tackled her to the ground. She struggled against me. But you worked so hard for this, she said. I forced the camera into her hands, turning it to face her as the fires drew near. We worked so hard for this, she continued. I forced her finger onto the shutter button and held it down. The lens pointed directly at her. Click. The light flashed to illuminate my other half. She looked weary, tired, broken. I left her as the flame spread. I got up, sprinted to Bryce and shook him until his eyes fluttered open. He was weak and barely awake, but was able to get to his feet with my help. 
he leaned on me for support. We escaped to the exit, and when I noticed there was something already there, a creature tapping at the front door from outside, the same silhouette from the night that I had first arrived and snapped that selfie. I opened the door. She's just down the hall, I said. The horrific entity strode past us and walked into the house. Slowly, Bryce and I descended the stairs and emerged onto the street. I held Bryce's hand as we walked down the middle of the road, stepping past the odd dead body in a stretcher. Are we getting close? I asked him. Yeah, almost there. He lifted his head to the sky. I kept noticing, he started. Things from my past that shouldn't have been here. Random portraits of things that I uniquely cared about. The faces of people from my past. Stuff from books that I had read. I wish that I could have pieced it all together sooner. There's no way you could have known. We kept walking. So why did you bring me back? He asked. Uh, clearly because I've been in love with you my entire life. I think I just really missed you. Sorry, a bit of a dick move on my part. That's alright. I'm just excited to get some sleep now. We were closing in on the graveyard now. I could tell because the damage to his body was becoming more and more apparent. With each step, he looked more unrecognizable. See you on the other. We're almost there, buddy. Sighed. I laid him in the grave that was marked with his name. He looked just like he did in that cursed photo. I looked at the grave beside his, marked with my name. One day when it's time, I'll come back here. But for now, it was time to go. I had one more stop. Clearly, Bryce's demise had taken its toll on the town. There were fires everywhere, residents holding each other and crying. Others standing like statues in the street, devoid of breath. I walked through the sliding doors of the Parker Group building. I took the elevator up to the ninth floor and then walked the corridor down to Meredith's dungeon. When I entered, her keeper was already leaning against the wall, coughing up blood. He didn't notice me enter. He was probably busy keeping himself from fading away. Meredith, I said. She lifted her head. Is your leg broken? Yeah. No, no, it's okay, you're safe with me. Is your leg broken? Uh, maybe. Is there a piece of metal lodged in your chest? No, no there. Meredith, it's alright. You're not supposed to be here. You and I both know this. You were in an accident. She teared up. You didn't make it. No, no, I'm... Meredith, listen to me very closely. You've been dead for quite some time now, haven't you? She took a while to answer me, and finally she smiled. Yes, she replied weakly. She collapsed from the chair to the floor, chains removed, dead as she was supposed to be. I made the long journey to the edge of the now-empty town. I entered an ambulance that had been parked near the forest and drove into the night. Further and further until I was deep in the fog that had killed Matthias and Svetlana, and so many before it. The mist stretched long, but eventually I was out, back on roads familiar, and with a dense forest on either side of the road, I noticed something ahead in the distance. 
I stared closer and I caught sight of Bryce walking by the side of the road. Or, well, the version of Bryce that I had encountered on my first night in town. The happy, smiling imposter Bryce who had shown up at the house past midnight, waiting outside of the door. The stranger still was who he was holding in his arms. It was me, or the town planner me, my grief-stricken half. As I took in the morbid sight of them walking in the glow of the moonlight, I realized, this Bryce must have been the creation of a different ritual. Ah yes, that other ritual, the one with the feather in the bowl of water, where I wanted to manifest a Bryce who would never ever leave my side. I guess he ended up rescuing my other half from the horrible fate that befell her. Yes, her body looked mangled beyond recognition, but I could tell that she was still alive. Maybe, just maybe, they would be good for each other. As the ambulance barreled past and I made my way home, I had to admit that it was a bit unfortunate that I was driving, because I really would have liked to take a photo of them. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.